Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to the episode of today. So this episode is one that I'm pretty excited to talk about because it's A, something I'm passionate about and I've learned a lot throughout my time thus far and I'm sure I'll get better and better at doing this. And B, it's something that I get asked all the time by you beans in my DMs, on comments um, and in emails as well. And the topic is, I'm sure you've read it as you've clicked on it, but it is how to know what you want. This is huge. It is amazing. I'm going to be talking about um, questions that you can ask yourself. I'm going to be talking about why it is that we struggle to know what we want in the first place, because I think if you understand why you struggle to figure out what you want and to determine what you want, it's going to be easier to then start approaching how you're going to go about knowing what you want in a in a more enlightened way. You're going to understand yourself better. I think it is important to look at your struggles and look at which ones apply to you because then you have better insight into yourself, okay? Um, So that's what the topic of today is about, a little life update. I was on the Gold Coast um, last weekend for a friend's wedding and I met so many of you beans. Can I just say shout out to all the beans that I met. You guys are out there doing all the self-development work, out there exercising. Heaps of you spoke to me about that, you know, listening to the podcast helped you not only get over your breakup, but not take that person back. And you've made all these changes in your life. And, you know, I'm honestly so, so proud of all of you guys, when I hear that you've like implemented these things and you're not going to take shit from someone again and you're going to, you know, start setting some boundaries and you're making all these changes in your life, it makes me feel so, 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 so happy Uh, because often I get to read it, which is amazing. But then when I meet someone and I hear their stories in person, I absolutely love it. So thank you to everyone that did come up to me and say hello. It Obviously, the Gold Coast is full of beans, so absolutely love that so much. Um, And if you do see me on the streets, definitely wave me down and say hello because I love nothing more than that. Okay, so before we get into the topic of today, we do have the brain fact. The brain fact is going to be about epidurals and also spinal anesthesia and the difference between the two and how the procedure is done. Um, And then after that, we'll get straight into the topic of today. And then of course, we have a listener question at the end. I love the listener questions. Keep them coming through. If you want to submit a listener question, you can do that via the email info at dyfmpod.com. Also, a little disclaimer, whatever you want to call it, little apology in advance. I am just recovering from like, do you know what? I don't even think I'm like, I think I've just never gotten over this like head cold because I'm not properly rested, which is so against what I tell people to do. So if you hear that I'm out of breath, I've not been running. I'm just like dealing with a head cold and my voice is a bit huskier than normal, but I am okay. And I promise I will take a little siesta after recording this, but just love, I fucking love podcasting so much. So I can't not release an episode, especially when I've got like all these ideas flowing out of my head. Anyway, let's get straight into the brain fact of today, then the topic of the podcast, then the listener question, and then I'm going to bed. All right. Okay, so the brain fact of today, which is about epidurals and spinal anesthesia. So I'm going to start talking about epidurals and then I'll kind of, you know, go into spinal anesthesia a little bit at the end. But once you understand an epidural, then spinal anesthesia also makes sense. So when would you use an epidural? So epidurals are used to reduce pain sensation as much as possible when you want the patient to be conscious. 
So a prime example of that would be childbirth. So for this, it's necessary to perform like a nerve block in the nerves that are coming from the lumbar and sacral regions of the spine, which is in the lower back area. So the lumbar and further down. So quickly, just to break it down, your spinal, well, first we'll talk about the actual spine and then I'll talk about the spinal cord. So your spine has all these cervical discs and each disc is labeled. So starting at the very top at your neck, you've got your cervical discs, which is, it goes from, it's labeled C1 down to C8. So there's obviously eight of them and the nerves protruding from here, they're going to innervate the head and the neck, arms, diaphragm, a whole bunch of other things. Then we've got the thoracic spine. So that's labeled T1 down to T12 and the nerves that come out of here, are they take care of the abdominal area and your chest muscles, among other things. And then we've got the lumbar, which is L1 down to L5. And these nerves are in charge of the legs. And then at the bottom, we have the sacral or sacral region, which is S1 to S5, which takes care of bowel movements, bladder, sexual function, among other things. So if you think of your spine being labelled from C1 to 8, T1 to 12, L1 to 5, S1 to 5. The spinal cord runs down your spine, but the spinal cord ends at around L2, lumbar 2. Then you've still got all these other discs that continue further down. You've got, you know, L3, 4, 5, and then you've got the um, S1 to 5 as well. So the spinal cord ends at around L2 in the lower back. And from the tip of the spine, there's a bunch of nerves that flow out of the spine that then feed down each of those um, disc sections that I mentioned to then the corresponding parts of the body, to innovate the corresponding parts of the body. And this bundle of nerves that comes out of the tip of the spinal cord at at your T2 is called a corda equina, which means horsetail because that's what it looks like. It looks like an actual horsetail, a bundle of nerves that kind of flows out. So now that you kind of understand the area of the spine, where the spinal cord ends in relation to the spine, then it's going to make it a little bit more, a little bit easier to understand how epidurals, especially in childbirth, works. When an epidural is being administered, in childbirth or any other time, but specifically in childbirth, you it's it's going to be administered below the, the T2 level, so below where the spinal cord ends, and that is a safety measure because you are just avoiding the risk of hitting the spinal cord. Now, the spinal cord and part of this corda equina, that horsetail of nerves, is covered in this protective layer that the brain is also covered in. And I've spoken about this literally two episodes ago and in many of my brain facts I've spoken about this and it's the protective layers around the brain but it also is around the spine and also around the corda equina and this is the dura mater and the arachnoid mater. Um, like I said, I've mentioned that before. And then inside the dura mater and the arachnoid mater that covers the base of the spinal cord and the corda equina, you have the cerebral spinal fluid. And this space is called the subarachnoid space, subarachnoid because it's underneath the arachnoid mater, that kind of um, layer around the outside of it. And when you're giving an epidural, the aim is not to penetrate the dura mater 
It's actually to inject the anesthetic between the outside of the dura mater and the rear part of the spinal canal. And this section here is called the epidural space. Hence why it's called an epidural because it's going into this epidural space. The anesthetic is going into that space. Now, how do you access this epidural space? So you need an injection. I can't remember. I think it's called a two-way injection and it's a hollow kind of injection. You inject this needle through the space between the spinous processes and these spinous processes are, if you've ever seen a diagram of a spine, there's one side of the spine that looks quite smooth and the other side of the spine that's got these like lumpy projections out of each vertebra. Um, and those lumpy projections are on the outer side of your spine. So if you put your hand on your back and you can feel those lumps, that those lumps are the spinous processes, okay? So you want to be injecting that needle in between the spinous processes, Um through the soft tissue, there's all these names for the soft tissues and stuff, but I'm not going to go into it. Through the soft tissue and the tip of that needle ends up in this epidural space. Then there's a little bit of saline solution that gets released to create a bit of a space. And then a catheter is inserted through that needle and pushed up into that space. And then eventually they can remove the needle, but leave the catheter in there so they can continue to administer anesthetic as needed throughout the procedure, depending how long the procedure will take. Now, only a tiny amount, at the very beginning, only a tiny amount of this anesthetic is given um, to ascertain if the needle actually ended up in the right place. So they give a little bit of anesthetic and then they wait a few minutes. And to test if it was, if the epidural has been done properly, they'll ask the patient to move their legs. And if the patient can move their legs but not feel much, then it has landed in that epidural space it's been a success and then they can go and administer a much stronger dose of that where then the patient is going to feel way more numbing. So initially they'll be able to move their legs and maybe have a little bit of numbing, but it's not until they administer more of that dose. If the patient can't move their legs, it's presumed that that catheter is not in the um, epidural space, but it's actually gone into the subarachnoid space. So it's actually gone through the dura and the arachnoid mater and it's gone into that subarachnoid space. So then they would need to change that. So they need to remove it and start again. Now, it's not a bad thing that it's gone. It's not like it's going to be deadly or dangerous or whatever to go into that subarachnoid space, but that is the difference between an epidural and a spinal anesthesia. So epidural, you're in that epidural space where you can move your limbs, but the sensation and the pain sensation is diminished dramatically versus when you do a spinal epidural, you are going into that subarachnoid space. So you are penetrating through the dura and the arachnoid mater in that subarachnoid space where the corda equina is, that like bundle of nerves, and that's where the cerebral spinal fluid is and that's where you're giving the anesthetic. And when you do it there, you then get the result of not only you don't feel pain, but on top of that, you can't move. So this would be an example of where that would happen would be in a cesarean. You would be administering spinal anesthetic going into that subarachnoid space um, because, of course, you absolutely don't want the patient being able to move while you're performing a C-section. So that kind of covers the difference between uh, an epidural and spinal anesthetic. I found that really interesting when I learned about that because I used to think back in the day 
that when you would get an epidural that you'd be like piercing into sections of the spinal cord and I'd be like, fuck, what if you like nicked the wrong part? And I just, it, to me, epidural, the thought of an epidural just sounded so hectic and dangerous. But after understanding how it works, it kind of makes it seem a little less daunting than what I at least thought it was. So I found that really interesting. I hope you enjoyed that. All right, now it is time for the topic of today's episode. All right, the topic of today, how to know what you want. So look, I think it's easier to know what you don't want and that is important. I don't think you should completely discard paying attention to what you don't want. That is great. It's a great way to steer you in figuring out what you do want, but you don't want to sit in that space for too long. I think it's good to have a good balance, knowing what you want, knowing what you don't want. But knowing what you want is going to be a much better driving force in your life versus knowing what you don't want. Because knowing what you don't want is more so avoiding things and not going near things and setting up boundaries, which is very important. But knowing what you want is going to help you go after things. It's going to help you fight for things. It's going to be that grit, that determination, that driving force inside you, okay? You're not going to have grit and determination and driving force to not do something. Well, you might. But in general, that comes towards going and chasing that thing or, or working towards something, okay? The first thing that I wanted to do was break down why it is that we struggle knowing what we want. And there's a whole bunch of things and you can apply this to different areas in your life. Some of it comes down to relationships. A lot of people don't know what it is that they're looking for in a partner. A lot of it comes down to career. And a lot of it also comes down to your life in general. If you look at all the things in your life, like where would you ultimately want to live? What kind of lifestyle would you ultimately want to have? If, if someone said to you, you know, um, I can give you the, the life you want. You just got to tell me right now exactly the life you want to have. What is it? Would you be able to answer that question? You know, or would you be like, oh, well, there's actually like 20 things that I think I would kind of like to dabble in, but I'm not actually quite sure. Like what would, or would you be like, this would be my ideal life. I wish that I could wake up in this location, in this kind of home the, at this time. This would be my morning routine. These are the people I'd see. This is the work that I would get to dedicate my time to. These are the results that I would get to have and, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the, the health I would have. This is, you know, the physical attributes or traits that I would have, you know, do you know the answer? And a lot of people don't know the answer and it, it gets very muddy and it's not because you don't have things that you, that you want in your life, but it comes down to you don't know what you're passionate about. Um, you're more used to identifying what it is that you don't want and you've probably been shut down in your life by a lot of things that you've wanted in the past and people have said no or, or your life has just slapped you down and said, no, you're not getting that thing. So then you're a bit more conservative with what it is that you claim that you want, okay? But let's talk about why we struggle. There's five points that have broken down. I'm sure there's a million more. Number one, imposter syndrome is a huge one. So we have this imposter syndrome and we think that we are not capable or worthy or able to have that thing so we don't try to reach for that certain thing or we pretend that we don't want that certain thing. And this is very common with when it comes to career. And it can be relationship, but career is a big one. So it's this feeling of like, well, I could never actually achieve that. Why do I think that I would achieve that? I'm not good enough to achieve that. What have I done in my past that, could, that proves that I can achieve that thing? So I'm not even going to try. And I'm kind of not even going to say that I, that I want that thing because I feel like an idiot, like setting the bar that high for myself. Another one, number two, is that 
We're embarrassed to go for something because it might be too quote unquote big. Um, so we don't admit out loud that we want a certain thing. And so then we end up going for things that make sense or that seem attainable based on what the people around you are achieving. So very much, you know, based on the environment and who you surround yourself with is how comfortable you are about saying, oh, I want to go and achieve that thing. I want to go and do that thing. So for example, if you are around a bunch of people that are absolute high achievers career-wise and they're always going for these big things and, you know, trying those really difficult things and putting themselves out on a limb and, you know, always reaching really hard. And if you were to say, oh, I want to go and do this thing, everyone be like, yeah, cool. Amazing. Good luck. Versus if you're in a group of people that is the opposite of that. And then you say, I want to go and achieve this like hectic thing. They're going to be like, really? Like that's, you know, do you know how many people actually get there? Do you know how saturated the market is? Do you know how difficult it actually is to create a product in that industry in this day and age when there's already a million things here? How is it going to be original? And all these ways to shut you down, shut you down, shut you down because they don't see it as viable. So they might be doing it either A, to protect you because they care or B, to shut you down because they didn't come up with the idea and they feel like, oh, great, now you know, you're going to try something that I've wanted to do but can't, you know. So you just might be embarrassed to admit those things based on your circumstances. Number three, you think that what you want has to align with what you've done in your past and that it has to be relevant. So because of that, you limit the scope of what you think you can have or what you think you can achieve. So if you've always worked in one particular career in your life, you might Let's say you've always been a teacher and you love it and it's all well and good, but you might really, really want to be an architect, right? But you're like, I'm fucking 38 and I've always done teaching or teaching related things. That's all I've ever studied. That's all my experience has ever given me. Now I'm older. I'm fucking going to like, I can't be an architect. So now I've got to figure out what I want that's outside of what I actually want and inside the realm of what I'm used to doing, you know. So a lot of people do that. A lot of people actually have this idea of like, fuck, if I had my time again, this is what I'd do, you know. But then they think, but I can't. And in a lot of cases, yeah, okay, there are some cases where it's not possible to completely change your career depending on where you're at in your life or can you take time off to study and all of that. But in a lot of cases, it is possible. It might take you longer to get there. It might have to be a part-time thing initially. It might, there might be all these differences in how you achieve it versus had you done it earlier. But a lot of people instantly think, I'm too old. It's too late for me. Now I have to figure out what it is that I want, but limit the scope of what that is because it has to be relevant to what I've done my whole life. So that's another reason why we struggle to figure out what we want because you've limited the scope so massively. Instead of broadening your horizons and thinking, wow, there's actually a lot more out there, but I just have to be a bit more, you know, adventurous and allow myself to be a bit more daring. Number four, you only base things on what you know. And so then you keep on searching for similar things. So for example, what I mean by this is let's use dating as an example. Often, When you're in a relationship with someone, you've fallen for someone hard, they break your heart, right? You then try and look for people that have the same characteristics, physical and personality-wise, as your ex, right? Oh, well, you know, now I must, I can only date people with tattoos because they're just so much cooler than people that don't have tattoos. So I absolutely just have to 
date that and then I have to date someone who, you know, runs their own business because my ex ran ran their own business and and I just really liked that about them. And, and then before you know it, you're basically describing your ex and trying to go for that but just, you know, a slightly better version of your ex. And then so you, you've limited what you want in a partner to what you've had because you think, well, that oh, I liked it in the past so I must like it in the future. Instead of broadening your horizon and taking your chances with a completely different person who you would have never imagined dating but then you might end up being like, wow, now I'm in love. Often you'll even see people that have a type, right? They date a type, date a type, date a type, date a type. And then the person they end up marrying is completely different to the type. Why is that? Because at this, at some point, this person either got swept off their feet by someone or they thought, this isn't working for me. I need to broaden my horizons. I'm going to start dating people that are different to my type. And that's when they fall in love. That's when they realize, wow, I've really broadened the scope and I've been impressed and now I want to marry this person that I never gave myself even the opportunity to even look at because I thought I might not even be, you know, that wouldn't be my type, right? And then number six, you factor in fitting in with your community or your group or your family or your whatever so much that you will stop yourself from doing things because you don't want to be like exiled or shunned from the group or laughed at or you don't want to be made to feel like an idiot or made to even be embarrassed. So for example, you may have a passion for playing the trumpet, right? But your friends are going to think that that's a fucking weird career flex that then you choose not to like pursue that career because you think, I don't want my friends laughing at me because all of a sudden I've decided to take up the trumpet seriously, you know? And if you're laughing at this right now, what I just said, that's a prime example of why someone won't pursue a career as a trumpet player, for example, because it's just out of the realm of what their community or what their friends or what their family would think is normal. And often when people do something that's not normal or that's not normal to them or that seems weird to them, you think, oh, well, I can't go and do that thing because I don't want to get laughed at. Or I don't want people thinking that I'm just, you know, having going through a phase or whatever. So those are the reasons why we struggle to really d- be, be decisive on what we want. So to go over it, imposter syndrome, um, you're embarrassed to go for something because it might be too big for what you're used to. Um, you think that what you want has to align with what you've done. You only base what you want on what you've had. And you have you factor in fitting with your community too much. It's important to fit into your com- community at, to a certain extent, like being respectful and being nice and loving and caring. Um, but you don't have to fit in in every single way. So th- those are the reasons why you struggle. Now I want to go through four, I believe, four ways, four things to do, whether it's to ask yourself something or look at something in a different way, that will help you know what you want. Number one. If everyone thought what you were going to do or what you wanted to do was a brilliant idea and cheered you on and, you know, spoke about it to everyone being like, isn't this incredible what they're going to do? This is fucking phenomenal. That's such a good idea. Why didn't I think of it? That's amazing. If everyone thought that highly of your idea, what career options, what three career options do you think would be awesome for you to have. Not realistic, but awesome. Okay. Name those three things. You can pause this because this is a bit of an exercise. What three careers 
legitimately, can you see yourself like in an alternate universe being like, wow, imagine if I did that, that would be fucking unreal. Pause if you need to. Once you've determined those three things, it's going to give you an insight into what emotions you like to experience. So if you said, uh, F1 driver, that would be fucking sick. Um, or like the other example I use, an architect, that'd be sick. And do, I use architect all the time because I think that would be my alternative um, career. If I wasn't like podcasting or a neurosurgeon, I'd probably do architecture. But like architect, right? Um, or you could, you know, whatever, fucking marine biologist, okay? What are the three things, what are, the, what are the emotions you like to experience? Because even though those three things are things that, you know, you're just like, oh, that'd be awesome, but realistically I actually wouldn't even want to do that with my life. It gives you an insight into what emotions you are chasing as far as a career. So in those three things, what were the experiences? Was it something adventurous? Was it something around an existing hobby of yours? Was it something around having a calming or soothing thing in your life? Uh, was it about being social? Was it about being isolated and just getting to do your own thing alone? Was it about being under pressure and thriving under pressure? What characteristics did you see in those three answers? Because it's not to say that those three answers are the thing that you want to do, but it's the characteristics that deep down you find to be awesome. And then that helps you understand how to go for things that you want. You start to determine, okay, I obviously in those three things, there was a theme of adventure. I obviously want adventure. I want constant change in what I do. I don't want every day to be the same. Or some people think, God, wouldn't it be great to just do my own thing without anyone telling me what to do? And I'm, you know, in my own little bubble in a cabin in the fucking forest. That is a dream, you know. So then pull those characteristics out and figure out, okay, maybe I, that's what I'm craving. Okay, so do that little exercise. It actually teaches you more than you realize about what you want. Number two, you need to understand that picking one thing doesn't mean that you're choosing one thing for the rest of your life, but you have to pick one thing for now, okay? Because you have to narrow it down at one point. If you have too many options, then you never get to focus on one thing and you never get to be really good at one thing or you never get the chance to eliminate that one thing after giving it a go. When you narrow down, you either love it or you eliminate it, but it's out of your mind as far as an option. You've either taken the option, you're actioning it, or you've discarded the option altogether. That's why I'm so big on just take action even though, you know, you've got all these other possibilities. That's why when it comes to decisions, a decision is better made and you picking one path than, than this indecisiveness. A decision is always better than indecisiveness. And when you have too many options, it might seem exciting, but it's actually paralyzing because you're not actually taking action. It's exciting to feel that you've got potential in all these areas, but what good is potential if you're not taking action on that thing? I'd rather take action on one thing and go down that path and really do my best in that path, then sit on a chair and think, wow, but I've got all this potential. I could do all these careers. If I'm not doing these careers, what fucking good is potential, right? So when you look at all these options that you have, pick something 
and roll with it, okay? It doesn't mean that you're stuck with that one thing for the rest of your life. Sometimes doing what you want to do ends up evolving and evolving and evolving. And in 10 years' time, you've done five things that you wanted to do instead of being in 10 years, d- 10 years down the track looking back being like, wow, I'm doing the same thing that I was doing 10 years ago. And I could have tried all these things, but I didn't because I couldn't, I couldn't pick one thing to be decisive on. If you're always jumping between one thing and the other thing and you're, you're doing this but your mind is here and you're doing that, you're going to feel like the grass is greener on the other side. If you're always nor here nor there, the grass is always going to be greener on the other side. And it's okay to have like, you know, a support plan or like a backup plan kind of thing in the sense of like I'm going for this career that is like, this is my passion, this is my drive, this is all my passion project or whatever, but I've got this job to pay my bills. That's perfectly fine because one has all your passions and your drive and whatever and the other is a means to an end. So there's a difference with that and it's okay to have those things. But if you're between like, oh, I could be doing this, oh, I could be doing that, oh, I could be doing that, you're not actually narrowing down on something and then it gets really hard to know what you want. And then and then when you get stuck in that, in that, area in that zone in your life you're like I don't know I could do this I could do that I think a lot of people think that you have to wait until something lands on your lap that you're like oh my fucking god this is what I want passion is found you have to find your passion it doesn't arrive in your lap and the only way you find it is by making decisions and taking action right I would have never found the podcast had I not done acting, failed at acting, tried this, tried that, done studied, like studied this and then attempted that and then had this failed thing here and failed thing there. But it was all action, 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 failure, failure, whatever you want to call it, doors closed, doors closed, bang, 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 bang. Then something clicks. And then once it clicks, then you get passionate about it. You know, that's how it unfolds for most people most of the time. Only a small percentage of people just wake up feeling absolutely passionate about something and then they just know. That doesn't happen that often. Most people find it through action, action, action. And that's going to be what you're going to do. Because if you're listening to this episode, you're not someone that passion, that a passion has just landed on your lap. You're someone who's probably like me, where you're going to find what you want by looking for it through action, through work, through trial and error, through experiences. Don't sit here and think, oh, well, but if I go down that path and put my time and energy into that, then I've blown my chance of going down another path. That's not the case. Because when you go down that path, you get to learn more about that thing. And that is where passion is found. Okay. Number three, and this is a huge one that's very close to my heart, knowing when to quit on something that's not working for you is important to free up space for something that you will then love in the future, okay? You have to know when to quit. I have a whole episode on that. It's called Knowing When to Quit. And it is so important to know when to quit. You may not want something anymore, like a career or whatever it is that you're pushing for, but you're embarrassed to quit because you wanted to prove someone wrong who said that you couldn't do it or because you've been banging on about it for such a long time that it feels like time is wasted. Time is never wasted. You still lived, right? You're here. It's never wasted. You might stay in a relationship that's just not healthy or not viable or, you know, worse, that you, where you're never happy because 
you think, well, it's just been so long, I can't quit now. Look at all these years that I've invested in it and I can't quit now. You don't, this is the beauty of time. You never lose the, it's not like money in the sense that I've spent all this money. If I pull out now, then I lose all the money and all the potential money I could be making. With time, that time has been spent regardless if you quit or if you don't quit. You're never going to get that time back now, whether you keep that decision or whether you discard that decision. You've already spent it. That's the beauty about time. You spend it as you live it. So you need to maximize it. You can't fucking save it. You can't like collect time from the past and put it into the future. It's what you do with it right here, right now. Okay? So that is the beauty of quitting when something's not working for you anymore. That time you're not going to get back anyway. You've spent it and rightly so. So why are you going to spend any time trying to prove some random flop wrong when you could be doing something better with your time? And sometimes pushing for something when you no longer enjoy it is, is the time that you realize that you've got to cut your losses. Sometimes you'll push and grind and push and grind and grind and grind and grind for something and you realize like all the fun is gone. And instead of thinking, I maximized it, I milked it, I gave it my, my all, now I can step away. A lot of people think, oh God, now I can't quit because I'm in too deep. Never feel that way. You're never in too deep and you can always quit. And when you quit, that is when the real fun begins because you stop cock blocking yourself from exploring new things, from experiencing new things, from finding things that truly bring you joy, that, tr- that you gain a true sense of fulfillment from, where you might even feel on purpose for. Sometimes you're so blinded by these reasons as to why you haven't given up on something that doesn't work for you anymore, that you forget what's on the other side. Sometimes it's just ripping the band-aid off that's the hardest part. And then when you're on that other side of like, okay, I've, I've let go of this thing that's not working for me, for me anymore. And then you're standing on this like, wow, I feel so free. I feel so fucking free. That's when the fun begins. Cutting your losses and being honest about it with yourself and being ruthless with these things is probably my number one tip on how to figure out what you want. Because sometimes on your path to figuring out what you want, you'll determine that you want something and you try and go for that thing and it just doesn't happen for you. It just doesn't happen for you, okay? If every single person who wanted to be an actor became an Oscar-winning actor, how many fucking Oscar ceremonies would we have to have? There's many broken dreams in that career path and in every career path, okay? So sometimes it doesn't happen for you. But that doesn't mean that you're going to say, well, I tried to go for what I wanted. It didn't work for me, so why bother? No, that just means this is a closed door. Turn the other way. Try another thing because you are going to find something that you like, but you have to know when to quit when something's not working for you anymore, especially if it's not bringing you joy. If that thing brings you joy, stick it out for as long as you want. When something brings you joy, ride that wave. But if it doesn't bring you joy, And if it doesn't bring you any sense of fulfillment and you're miserable, cut your losses. The last one, point four, decisiveness. Learn how to decide. I also have another podcast on that, so go check it out. I think it's called How to Make Decisions, lol. (laughs) I don't know. I'm guessing that's what it's called, what I called it. But when you learn to decide, you become a lot better at being ruthless. You become a lot better at cutting out the unnecessary, filtering out the unnecessary stuff, right? 
And that's really important because you have to be good at filtering out shit and filtering in the good stuff. So I like to start with small things and then it's a lot easier to work your way up to bigger things. Become really good at being decisive with small things. Things like what you're going to watch for TV, um, what you're going to cook for dinner, what you're going to select on a menu, right? When you have too many options on the table, you struggle. If you give yourself too many options, I think a lot of people think options are freedom. It's not. It's not. Decisiveness is freedom. But when you have a thousand options, it's just clutter. That's all it is. It's clutter. I don't think we're any happier today with all the options we have in all the things we do than people were 20 years ago. I actually feel going to Blockbuster in the 90s was definitely more exciting than Netflix is now. Isn't that weird? It's like when you get so spoilt for choice, you become complacent. And when you just have a few options that it's more exciting and you can provide that for yourself, okay? So you, you can be the one that culls, culls the options and makes it, you know, quality over quantity. When a menu at a restaurant is pages long, you suffer. It's not fun. You're like, fuck this what the fuck? I came here to enjoy myself and now I don't know what I'm, 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 you know, you're standing there like a zombie not knowing what to order. Give me three options on a menu and I'll be thrilled, you know. Endless options don't make you happy, okay. Decisions make you happy. So you want to learn how to decide. Nothing makes me happier than being decisive, okay. You need to learn how to decide and you practice on it. The more you practice, the better you get. And a decision is a commitment, When you decide on something, you commit to something. And when you commit to something, you invest in that thing. You invest time, you invest energy, ideas, you nurture those ideas and you nurture those relationships. Why do we think that the dating scene is so fucked at the moment? Because of options. Everyone's got all these options that no one wants to lock anything in and they're terrified that they're going to invest in someone because another option might come along. But you're never going to experience the joy unless you invest. It's a vicious circle. You know, when you find someone, you might think, oh, yeah, nah, but you're not, uh, you don't really look how, how I want you to look and this, that, this. I'm flicking, I'm scrolling, I'm swiping, swiping, swiping. And because you're not fully invested, because you're waiting for the perfect person to come around, you could have swiped no one 10 perfect matches for you as far as the life you could have with that person. You might have swiped what left, is that wrong? You might have swiped no to someone who if you had met them, you would have shared the most unbelievable life of adventure and friendship and passion. But what happens? A lot of people never end up getting to experience that because they're so indecisive. And so you've got this population of people on the dating apps who are really, really, really willing to invest and meet people out of the, you know, but they're, they're up against people who want options and, and want variety and want endless options and, and are waiting for like the perfect thing to fall in your place. So it's no match. So if you're someone who's like, but I'm open, I'm, you're just in the wrong place then. Because a lot of people get their heart broken on apps because, you know, I get written to so many times about people that, you know, have gone on on a date and it's just gone so well, they bounced off each other, they vibed and then they get ghosted and they just don't understand. But that person likely is in that point in their life where they're like, mm, uh, not going to lock that in yet. I think something even even better is going to come along. How can you experience even better if you don't invest the time? That's my question. Well, I'm not sure. I don't know what the answer is to that. So the same goes for 
decisions in your life. If you half-ass something here and then waiting for something else to come along and then half-ass that thing and wait for something else to come along, what do you think the results are going to be? And what do you think your emotions around that are going to be? Pretty half-assed, right? You give, you, you get what you give. So if you decide on something and be like, that's the fucking thing. I'm locking it in. I'm fucking committing. And because I've committed, I better invest my time, my energy, everything. Then you start to reap all the rewards. And the beauty of it is that that thing that you've decided on might just be a one-year thing career-wise maybe that then evolves into something else that lasts longer, that then evolves into something else. When you choose one path, you're not shutting every other opportunity. You might then broaden your horizons in other areas, but you need to go down that path first. And the only way you do that is through decisions. So you're much better off, much better off deciding on one thing than trying to keep all these doors open and trying to kind of dabble in a million different things, but then always feeling like the grass is greener and always feeling like you don't know what you want. You have to, you have to commit. You have to commit to something. And like I've said a million times, the beauty of that thing, if you go down that path and you're like, fuck me, dead, this is not what I want. Perfect. Discard it and you never have to entertain that thought in your head ever again. You've just freed up space onto the next. That is the beauty of decisiveness. Whether it works the way you hoped for or whether it doesn't, you have gained, you've benefited, okay? So those are the four points. Let's recap them before we go into our listener question. Number one, what are those three career options and what is the theme of those career options to get you to understand what what, um, feelings you are trying to chase? Number two, narrowing down your focus is important. Don't always feel like the grass is greener on the other side. Number three, knowing when to quit is one of the best ways to free up some space in your life so you can then go and find the things that you love. And number four, learn how to become more decisive and learn how to commit and invest your energy. Good times. So that, those are the four points. Hopefully you can implement those in your day-to-day in your life when it comes to figuring out what you want because learning what you want is a journey and what you want will likely always be evolving in your life. What you wanted five years ago is probably different to what you want now or what you thought you wanted. So understand that it's a constant evolution, but in order to evolve, the more you decide on things and take action on things and invest in things, the easier it's going to be for you to understand where you're headed, um, what you want to get out of it and, you know, what decisions you're going to make around it. So hopefully that was helpful and you are able to take that information with you so you can go and live a fulfilled life. Okay, now time for the listener question. Now, I have so many listener questions in my inbox and I do aim to get to all of them. This one came in today and I thought I just had to reply to this because I was having a similar conversation about something similar to a friend of mine recently. So I thought this is just spot on for where my head is at with giving advice for this. Hi, Alexis. I live for your energy and podcast. Thank you for being so inspirational. Thank you. My question is, I've been dating this guy who's in the closet for about a year and a half now. At the beginning, he was very sweet, kind and caring. But later on, after about three weeks into the relationship, I found out that he had lied to me about his age and his real name, which I understood due to him being in the closet. 
A year into the relationship, we went away for my birthday and I found out that he had been cheating on me with a few guys as I saw their phone conversations. We both cried about it all night, but I ended up forgiving him as I felt how sorry he was for what had he had done. Not even a month after, I then found out that he again had been messaging guys with the intention to meet up. I was devastated, but once again, I forgave him. Now I do not trust him, and every time when I would bring up the traumas I've endured due to his cheating and lying, he would get dismissive and just shut me down, which has resulted in me feeling like at times I walk on eggshells so he wouldn't hang up the phone as he always feels, quote-unquote, attacked, when I bring up issues mainly with how I feel. He tells me that he doesn't want to leave me and that I'm the one for him, lol. But at the same time, I feel like he really doesn't care about me or my happiness. Any advice on how I could leave for good? I've tried multiple times, but I just end up going back to him. Thank you so much. You probably get so many messages, but hopefully you get to read mine. Okay, thank you so much for writing in and sharing that story. So I get from your question at the end, any advice on how I could leave for good? So you are determined that you want to leave this relationship, I'm presuming, based on the question at the end, because part of me was thinking, obviously, apart from the fact that he's cheated on you multiple times, he has not been transparent with you. There's a lot of underlying issues there that also is, it's a mix between issues within the relationship and personal issues that he's going through himself, given that he's in the closet, that is very layered. And there's a lot that goes on behind that, that could be causing these behaviors, not justifying it, but saying that that's what's probably tied to a lot of these behaviors. But then there's also the idea that you want to leave. But the main issue that's occurred, okay, obviously the issue is that he's been having an affair, like affairs and lying to you, but a massive issue here is the lack of communication. And communication is absolutely everything. And if a part of you did want to stay, you would only be able to stay with someone like that if you could communicate. And given that he's not willing to communicate, I feel that it's, that is a really good way to exit this relationship because the way I would approach it, I mean, you can always walk away and just be done with it. But I like for people to have the opportunity to say their piece and to say what they need to say if it makes them feel better. So if I were you in this situation, the main thing that I would do is very, very clearly speak to my partner about the fact that I cannot be in a relationship with somebody who is not willing to communicate. And when somebody instantly gets on the defense and claims that they've been attacked when all you've done is raise something that they did, that is manipulation. That is like gaslighty flex, right? That is them saying like, oh my God, how dare you pull me up on my own bullshit behavior? You've attacked me. What? What am I, like, what am I listening to? When someone says that, that is like manipulation tactic 101. Oh, it's the tone that you said it, now I'm attacked. Oh, you know, we were doing so well and then you decided to bring something up that I did that has affected you because I really hurt you and now I'm hurt. It's just this lack of ownership. It's a lack of accountability. It's a lack of self-awareness and it is a fucking turn off. So I would honestly go to my partner and say, gross, 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 gross. If you had had an affair on me and you would let me talk about it and we could actually discuss it like adults, I could potentially move past this and we could potentially have a great and strong relationship. But the issue is that you're not an adult. 
What am I dating? Like, what am I looking at right now? Who am I dating? A child? No, thank you. Okay. I need someone who can listen to me when I talk about something that's hurt me. I need someone that can be my support, even when they're the ones that have caused the pain when we're trying to mend something as a couple, as a team. I need someone who's going to actually take ownership and accountability for their own behavior. You've had the opportunity many times to do that and at no point ever have you done that. All you've done is say, oh, I'm sorry. And then when I try and bring something up, you then say that you're attacked and you shut me down. So I'm the one who's now going to shut you down and I'm fucking done. That's what I would say. And you can write it, you can say it. And if you're going to say it, practice it so you don't slip up on your words and get nervous and get stressed. You can send it in a voice message. It doesn't matter. But those are the terms in which I would be breaking up because that is absolutely not viable for a long-term relationship. That is not a healthy relationship and it is not fair on you. And if someone's not willing to change or not willing to go and seek assistance to help them change, then you need to fucking tap out of that because how can you possibly have a healthy relationship moving forward? I hope that helped. Thank you so, so much for sending in your story. Love you guys so much. And as always, remember, be kind to your brain, be kind to yourself. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Don't care.